The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. We have reached an odd text this morning. As I was going through and I was trying to figure out you know, where we were in Mark, because until the Holy Spirit says, hey, we need you to, to go elsewhere, then we're just going to walk our way through Mark trying to wrap our minds around the ministry and the life of Christ and figure out, okay, well, what does Mark communicate to the church in Rome 2,000 years ago when he wrote it? And then on top of that, what is the Holy Spirit saying to us 2,000 years later because God's Word is still active and alive and powerful, right? And so we're trying to figure out in slow segments what it is that Mark is communicating. And so when we started in the book of Mark, we see that Jesus goes through this preparation time. I'm just going to do a really quick recap on where we are. But we see that Jesus goes and he's baptized by John the Baptist. He is symbolically putting himself in the place of sinners and being baptized in their mess, which is just a beautiful portrayal of what he winds up doing on the cross. He puts himself where sinners deserve to be, where he doesn't deserve to be, because only he can remove the sin from sinners, because he was not a sinner. And so he's baptized, then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and he's tempted by Satan, and and he's fasting, and he's just really, now that he has received the anointing of the Holy Spirit at his baptism, he's... He's gearing himself up for the next three, three and a half years of hard ministry. Because prior to being 30, Jesus didn't do any of this. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He was a simple carpenter. He grew up, probably learned his father's trade. We know that Joseph was a carpenter. And so Jesus goes through this time of preparation, and then he begins to launch out this ministry in Galilee. And along the way, he calls followers, fishermen, tax collectors, people from every walk of life. And he just says, hey, follow me. And as he goes, he begins to preach this message that is radically different from what the religious people of the day were teaching. The Pharisees, the Jews who were, I mean, they prided themselves on their ability to live better than everyone else because, well, they could keep all of God's 613 commands. And not only could they do that, but they would create some more just to prevent them from breaking those, and then they would pride themselves on keeping those as well. And so they were like the holy of the holies. Until Jesus showed up and said, you guys are basically missing the point. You're just as wicked as everyone else, and you're never going to gain righteous standing before God based on how well you think you live, because you don't really live that well. And so Jesus begins to teach this message of grace. The Pharisees were used to this message of law. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've You've got to make God happy by keeping his law. Jesus said, you can't keep the law, but I can and I will follow me. Let me be your righteousness. And so this conflict begins to brew between Jesus and the religious elite. And then we went through another sermon series where we looked at the role of works versus grace. We looked at the law versus grace. And Jesus' message was always all about grace. And so the Pharisees really hated him for it because they were about the law. Here comes this rebel, this heretic, claiming to forgive people's sins, yet somehow has the supernatural ability to cast out demons to raise the dead back to life, to heal sick people, to preach with the authority that they have never before heard in their synagogues. And they don't really have a a valid explanation for the work and ministry of Jesus. The best they could come up with several months ago we saw was they claimed that he was possessed by Satan. I mean, that was their best explanation for the power of Christ. And so he is just now, as we're going into Mark 6, beginning to wrap up things in Galilee. And his ministry is is still going to touched around there, but it's more going to transition into work around Jerusalem. And then later in this year, we're going to cover thoroughly the Passion Week, that last week of Jesus' life, that week that we're actually in now. 
as we begin to get closer and closer towards Easter. And so that kind of catches us up to where we are, where we're going. And so with that in mind, let's go to Mark 6. It's kind of cool that next week, uh, next week we're celebrating life. But here's, here's part of why I say this is an odd text. And we're going to unpack this a little bit as we get into it. But, but this is an odd text for several reasons. One, it's the longest passage, arguably the only passage, in the book of Mark where the focus is not on Jesus. I mean, if you just look right there, you're going to see Jesus once, but then everything else is, is not about Jesus. And as we continue with our next few passages, it's not about Jesus. It's about John the Baptist. It's about some history that happened. That's another one of the weird parts, is there's not a whole lot of, of very doctrinal teaching. There's not a lot of things that we can grab from the text and incorporate into our body of knowledge for how God calls us to live as his people. And so it's not really Christocentric, it's not really about Jesus, it's connected to Jesus, but it doesn't feature Jesus. It doesn't really give us new instructions on the way that God would like for his people to be. It's really just a lot of historical backstory on an issue that happened before we even get to this point in the text. And so it's kind of odd that we're trying to figure out, okay, well, what is Mark communicating? How does that work with where we are? And, and it's also odd because, ironically enough, in spite of everything that I just said, the text is a beautiful segue into where we're going to be next week when Walt preaches. Because next week is Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate life. We celebrate the life of Christ. We celebrate the new spiritual life that he gives all of those who are in Christ. We're going to celebrate the physical resurrection of all of those who are in Christ. It's all about life. But, but this week it's all about death. We are surrounded by death. This is a gloomy story. It doesn't even really have a happy ending for most of the people. And so with that in mind, let's try to figure out where is Mark going. So we know that Friday, Friday all around the world, and we could argue about the day of the, of the death of Christ based on the, the complexities of the way that the Jews denoted their time and their seasons and their days and whatnot, but, but this Friday is Good Friday. And so all around this world, millions, if not arguably billions of people, at some point on Friday are going to sit and think to themselves about exactly what happened on that bloody cross 2,000 years ago. And that's great. And then this entire week, the Passion Week, kind of builds up to that, and this, this text is just beautiful harmony. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the King of the Jews, was murdered. Right? But he wasn't alone. There was somebody else, somebody who, who foreran Jesus, not just in his birth, not just in his ministry, but also in his death. Jesus calls him the greatest man who ever lived. We know him simply as John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, John the Immerser in the Greek. And he truly was a forerunner for Christ in all kinds of ways. There were incredible parallels in the deaths of these two men, and we get today to really look well into both of them, really. That might catch you kind of off guard, because John was alive and well last time we saw him. Well, he, he was alive at least. Mark chapter 1, we see that John was arrested. So we know he was alive, might not have been so well. And now we're already talking about his death. And we've we got to figure out, okay, well, how do we go from John's baptizing people and preaching repentance and then he's arrested and now he's dead? All right, how did we get there? What am I missing out on? What happened? We're also going to meet a man today that's consumed with fear and guilt. A man who later in life had the opportunity to be freed of this and yet he refuses it. When it's all said and done, we're going to have to ask ourselves 
the very question that we've been chewing on for the last six months. How are we going to respond to the work and the ministry and the power and the authority of Jesus? All right. So with that in mind, here's our text. Where we left off last week, we know that Jesus commissioned his disciples. He sent them out, which made them apostles, ones who were sent. And he says, preach the message of the kingdom, preach repentance. And as you go, here is the power and the authority given by me to you to perform the same works that I'm doing. And so as they go out, they're healing the sick. Matthew tells us that Jesus' commands also said, go raise the dead. And so now Jesus has effectively multiplied his miracle work and ministry from one person to 13 because now they're all doing it. He brought them to himself. He said, this is the mission. This is what we're doing. I have the power and the authority. I'm giving that to you. Now go out and do what I'm doing. Sounds pretty familiar, right? Because we're going to see Jesus do that again at the end of this book. And he does that for us. And so it's great that we get to watch this in action. And now we see in verse 14, Mark chapter 6, verse 14, King Herod heard of it, everything that was going on, for Jesus' name had become known. Now before we continue, we need to have a little background information on King Herod. And this might begin to sound a little bit like a historical lecture, but we kind of need to cover it because this guy comes from a really messed up family. One of those families that puts the fun in dysfunctional. I guarantee you, if True TV was around 2,000 years ago, they would have been following this guy's family around with some cameras, and y'all would have been sitting at home on Thursday nights, watching, calling each other and saying, I can't believe these clowns on, we'll just call it Galilee Shore. That actually works, because there's a pretty big lake there. But Dysfunctional family. Okay, King Herod's name, King Herod as we see it here, his full name is Herod Antipas. Okay, there were a lot of Herods running around. Herod the Great, his father, had like ten sons from seven different women, and I believe that all of them at some point in their life attached Herod to their name. And so this particular one was Herod Antipas. You might remember his father, Herod the Great. He was the king of Israel at the time that Jesus was born, and when he talked to the wise men, he found out that they were looking for a Messiah, the incoming king, he ordered the execution of all of the baby boys in Bethlehem that were two and under. Yeah, that, that's, that's the background that Herod Antipas comes from. Herod the Great wasn't a, uh, a very good guy. But we have to also keep in mind that when we see the word king there, we're not really talking about the king of Israel as it was back in David's day, when the kingdom of Israel had its own borders, its own military, its own political system. Now, at best, it's, just a, it's simply an empty title that's given to whoever it is that's in charge of a given area. Because as the Roman Empire expanded and began to take over all of the land around them, there was an increase in need to have governors and people who would rule various districts on behalf of the Roman Empire. And so they didn't even really have any power independent of the Roman Empire. Rome said, hey, this is our mandate. This is what we want you to do. And if you're going to lead here and we're going to pay you and give you this political power, Really, you're simply going to do what we want you to do, which makes you nothing more than a puppet of the Roman Empire. But if it makes you feel better, why don't you call yourself king? Yeah, that'll make you feel important. If it gets you to do your job, call yourself whatever you want. And so the word king doesn't mean, as we would think, an absolute ruler over an area. It's more, at best, a governor, a puppet of the Roman Empire. And so King Herod the Great, Antipas' father, when he was in rule, he basically controlled all of the land of Israel, uh, or of Judah, Judea. 
But when he died, he put in his will, he, he asked the Roman Empire, hey, when I die, why don't you break this land up into four different places, and I'd love for four of my sons to be kings themselves. And then collectively, they can kind of rule over all of it. It sounds like a pretty cool thing to do, right? Kind of nice of the old man, just split his power up, give it to his children. But, but five days before he died, he actually murdered one of his sons because he thought that his son was trying to take his kingdom from him. All right, Herod the Great was not a nice guy. Ordering the execution of children, killing his own son, the family dysfunction has really just begun there. So along comes Herod Antipas. And he is one of the sons of Herod the Great, and he is indeed placed with one of those four provinces that used to be all of Judea. It was a title known as a tetrarch, if I'm pronouncing that right. It means governor of a fourth. And so he's got, at best, maybe 900 square miles around the Sea of Galilee, and then he's also in charge of a larger tract of land further south by the Dead Sea. And so now he's on the scene. He's trying to flex his, uh, flex his political muscle, if you will. Another thing that we need to keep in mind as we begin to build the background for King Herod Antipas is his dad, King Herod the Great, he wasn't even a Jew. He was of the, of the lineage of Esau and not Jacob. And so while they weren't Jewish, what they liked to do, what Herod the Great did, what Herod Antipas did, was they intermingled enough with the Jewish people of the area that they kind of wore the mask that they were part of God's chosen family. They would observe Passover, some of the other Jewish festivities. And so they were trying to really straddle that fence and gain favor with the Jews without even really being one of them. I don't know if that was a technique that was designed to kind of squash them under his thumb so that they would respect him as their king and, and do whatever he wanted to so that then he would look good to Rome, get a raise, maybe get some more land. I don't know what his motivation was, but he tried to act like a Jew while he wasn't. He built a capital city called Tiberias, and uh, when the Jews found out that his capital building, the, the cream de la crop of the whole thing, was actually sitting on a Jewish graveyard, they got a little heated. And so he's trying to be a Jew, trying to play by their rules, but, but really I think it's just all for ulterior motives. He has no desire whatsoever to convert to Judaism. He has no desire to worship the God of Israel. He only wants to really worship himself. That is Herod Antipas' background, a power-hungry yet politically impotent, wannabe ruler over a group of people that aren't even really his. And now he has caught word of all of the miracles that are going on around Galilee. He hears of the works, that is. But see, there's a little bit of debate. They didn't really know who it was that was doing this. And some of them said, well, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Others were saying that, that it's Elijah. And John's not why these miraculous powers are at work around us. It's Elijah. Because he was a prophet, he, he, he raised somebody from the dead, and, and wasn't there a prophecy about Elijah coming? It, it's, it's Elijah. And then others were saying, well, no, it's, it's another one of the prophets of old. God has raised up new prophets with new power. And so there's some debate going on as to really what the source of all of these miraculous works were. You could understand the confusion. Supernatural events, people are trying to come up with supernatural explanations. At least they're kind of thinking on the right track. But Herod is among those who thinks that this Jesus guy is actually John the Baptist. In fact, in verse 16, when he heard of it, every time he heard of it, it was an ongoing thing. The Greek tells us this wasn't an isolated statement. Every time it come up, he would say, John, who I beheaded, has come back to life. 
and I think it terrified him. Consumed his thoughts. What if it's John? What if it's this guy that I had beheaded? I think that we're getting a peek into the reality of Herod's mind that is guilt-driven, it's fear-based. He's trying to figure out, maybe it's this guy that I had beheaded. And so why in the world would Herod have John the Baptist beheaded? I'm glad you asked, because Mark provides us the backstory. And so now we need to rewind it even further. We've got some Inception-type stuff going on here. And try to figure out why it is that John the Baptist went from being this crazy man in the wilderness to being arrested, hanging out in Herod's prison for almost two years, and then finally having his head cut off. Sound like a happy ending, anyone? Do you remember last week how I said that following Christ faithfully might not end the way that you envision? It's a perfect case study here. He does everything right and spends the the last part of his life lonely, isolated, miserable, and then beheaded. That was God's plan for him. And Jesus said that there has never before a greater man than John the Baptist. Sometimes we don't get the happy ending we expect. We know that John did, because if John is absent from the body, he's present with the Lord, right? And so it ended great for John, but that's not really the ending that we would envision. It's certainly not the one that we wish for our friends, for our family, but the reality is sometimes following Christ, a lot of times, if not all the time, comes with some serious cost. So it turns out that King Herod is the kind of man that likes to get what he wants. All right, have we gathered that yet? He's kind of an egomaniacal wannabe king, poser dude who just really wants to grab all the power and, and take what he wants. And so if he sees something that he wants, he takes it. Or he tries to figure out how to manipulate people into giving him what he wants. And it wasn't really much different when he met this girl named Herodias, who just happened to be married to one of his half-brothers. Same dad, different moms. His half-brother's name was Philip. Philip's wife's name was Herodias. Herod thought that she was kind of cute. Here's where the dysfunction really starts to add up. Because Herodias, I don't really want to read from my notes verbatim, but I might just have to get this straight. So let me go back over here. Wrap your mind around this. Herodias' grandpa is King Herod the Great. Okay? So her grandpa is not only Philip's dad, her husband, but is also King Herod Antipas' father. And so Herodias is only one generation removed from Herod the Great, as Philip is, and yet she marries him anyway. So she's marrying her uncle. All right, so Herodias didn't just marry into the royal family. She was born into it, and then she decided to marry her uncle. And King Herod, who is now still blood-related to her, wants her to be with him. Are we starting to see just what a messed-up family this was? I mean, I could go further into detail about what history teaches us about Herod the Great and his children. Probably not the most appropriate venue for it. Nonetheless, Herod wants Herodias, even though she'd married her own uncle, even though he was married to a rather wealthy lady whose father was the king of Arabia. And so he gets what he wants, and he convinces her to leave Philip. He divorces his wife, Aretas. The two of them are married, and they all lived happily, not even close. All right, the dysfunction is just beginning. Turns out John the Baptist is also John the preacher. And here is the alleged king of Israel, one of the kings, who is now in this adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, 
slash niece. And so I don't know if she'd call him Uncle Daddy or, or how that worked. I mean, their family tree is really beginning to look like a wreath. All right. I mean, I know this isn't really something to laugh at, but it's just, it gets, it gets worse. So laugh now, because if you laugh later, there's probably something wrong. It gets pretty messed up. So the two of them are married. John the Baptist sees this guy who claims to kind of be a Jew, to, to worship the God of Israel, to rule over God's people, and he is in this blatantly evil, adulterous, incestuous relationship. And John the Baptist calls him out on it. He's like, hey, bro, it's kind of unlawful to have your brother's wife. You're going to call yourself the king of the Jews and have this kind of relationship knowing that it's evil? Something's not jiving here, amigo. That's not going to work. And so John the Baptist just constantly, constantly hounded the king about this. Whether it was in public, in private, John the Baptist became known for bashing not just King Herod Antipas, but also his wife, Herodias. And it turns out she didn't like that very much. Scripture tells us that she had a grudge against him. The reality is she wanted to put him to death, verse 19. She had enough of his meddling. She had enough of this man being a nuisance. She wanted him dead. Herod, on the other hand, against all odds, actually kind of liked John the Baptist. He was glad when he heard him speak. I don't know if he was thinking about the parts that weren't specifically about his bad relationship or if there was something in the way in which John the Baptist spoke, but Herod was glad to hear him, even though he was perplexed. I don't really get you, dude. I know you're griping at me. I don't see a problem with it. I'm happy. She's happy. Who cares what your God thinks? Why are you bugging me with this? And so Herod didn't really want him dead. But Herodias did. And Herodias is just like her uncle, husband, daddy, brother, Antipas, in that she gets what she wants. And so Herod imprisons John the Baptist for over a year. You do the chronology of it, it's probably closer to two years at this point. Keeps him imprisoned. Visits him talks with him, message doesn't change, king, you need to repent, this, this is not fitting for anyone calling himself one of God's people. But then finally, the opportunity comes for things to get even worse. Verse 21, we find ourselves at a birthday party for Herod. We call it a birthday party, it was a banquet that he threw for himself. Um, if you've got to throw yourself a party, it's probably because not a whole lot of people really like you. But I'm throwing one for myself in October, so uh, you're welcome. I'm just kidding. All right, so he organizes this party. I'm going to trip up here. Organizes this party, and he invites all kinds of, of powerful men, nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. So these are the upper crust of Jewish society, in addition to upper crust Gentiles or non-Jews, some of the military commanders. He's getting this room together full of powerful people because he likes to think that he's on the same level with them. And hey, let's just all get together. Let's eat some good food. Let's drink some good wine. Not that stuff you buy in a box, but the good stuff. Let's just have a good time. Let's talk. Let's bond. Let's make plans. So what are we doing in Israel? What do you think the Caesar wants to do? Kind of schmoozing with the powers that be. I think we know some people in our own lives that that like to rub elbows above them, hoping that they pick them up a little bit. 
And so here comes our next player in this drama. At some point during this party, Herodias' daughter makes an appearance. Mark doesn't even name her. I don't believe any of the gospel writers name her. Josephus said that her name is Salome. History tells us that at this point she is about 15. So Herodias' daughter with Philip, which makes her Herod Antipas' niece by blood, comes into this party and begins to dance for this room full of men. Now Mark doesn't really go into detail about what kind of dance this is, but I'm willing to guess it wasn't the Harlem Shake. It probably wasn't the Macarena or the Texas Two-Step. Whatever dance this was left these men pleased. Now yeah, it could have been something innocuous. It could have been a really well-done square dance. It just left them thinking, wow, that's a very talented individual. I am pleased with this dance. But I think that we have valid reason to infer that it was probably a dance of a more sexual nature because of what Herod does next, because he begins to write checks with his mouth that his rear can't cash. And he wants to make her happy. Great dance. I tell you what, ask me for anything you want. All right, he's got the ear of all of these men, these, these powerful men. Ask me anything you want, and I'll give it to you. Up to half of my kingdom. Who are you kidding, Herod? You don't have a kingdom. You're one of Rome's yuppie boys in charge of a handful of acres of land and you're trying to give away half of your kingdom? He's talking big in front of his boys is what he's doing. But he's doing it because of whatever it was that she did. It just really made him not think right. I think that it made the whole room not think right because of what begins to happen next. That should tell you the perversity of this family. If this man's niece can come in and dance in such a way that has him not even thinking straight and just want to please her and offer half the kingdom, makes all of the other men happy, it's his niece. He should have been more of a father figure that prevented her from putting herself out like that in front of a room full of perverted men. Fifteen years old. Her mother, her mother who probably put her up to it, should have loved her enough to have protected her from her half brother-in-law, husband, whatever their relationship is. But nonetheless, she shows up, she dances. Herod makes this promise, and Salome runs back to her mom. Say, hey, mom, Uncle Daddy, whatever, whatever she called him, Herod Antipas just said that he'd give me anything I wanted. Up to half the kingdom. What should I ask for? A truck and a boat, if she was me, uh, a horse, and her mom doesn't waste any time. She says, why don't you ask for the head of John the Baptist? If Herod has promised you anything, and he made this promise in front of a room full of men that he's trying to rub elbows with, he'll give it to you. Ask for the head of John the Baptist. And so Mark doesn't tell us what was going through this girl's mind when her mom told her that. I don't know what was going through her mind when she was thinking about the things that she would ask for, but what Herodias wants, Herodias gets. And Salome doesn't waste any time coming back into the party. And I have to wonder if if Herod even remembered why it was that she was coming back. But she goes to him with haste and immediately says, okay, I know what I want. I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter, which wasn't an uncommon practice at the time. 
when your enemy was dead, their heads would be presented. History says that a lot of times whoever that head was presented to took a knife or a nail or a sword and shoved it through their tongue just as a way of spiting that head. That's how much they hated that person. Herodias says, I want John's head. Salome goes back in and she says, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist. I want him dead. Probably was about that time when Herod realized... I did not think this was going to happen. Because he kind of likes John the Baptist, remember? He didn't want him dead. He didn't really want him out there defaming his reputation, but he wasn't out to kill John. But he's in front of all of these men now, these military commanders, these hardened men of, of war, the leading men of Galilee, the noblemen. And he knows that if he retracts his promise, that he's going to lose face in front of these men. He's going to lose credibility. He's going to lose his integrity. Really, he's got no other option. And so he calls for the executioner. And he gives the executioner orders to go down to the prison and cut off his head. And so here's this room that's full of men, some of which are descendants of Abraham. God's chosen people. And they're sitting there and they're thinking to themselves, okay, John, John's one of us. Yeah, I know he looks a little funny out there wearing camel fur and eating bugs. And yeah, his message is kind of radical, but, but isn't his message turning people to the same God that we worship? And isn't he right? I mean, this is clearly an unlawful marriage. And so they're sitting there, and they've got the opportunity right there to say, ah, no, 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 wait a minute. It would be a further, it would be more evil for you to kill John than to take back your word. And so they've got the opportunity to stand up for one of their own countrymen. And instead, they sit by and they do absolutely nothing. They liked their wealth. If John wants to speak the truth, that's fine. Let him make waves. I'm not going to do that. And so now, because of his stand for godliness, for his obedience to the law of God, John was preaching truth. He's been imprisoned, and now he dies for it. Wasting no time, Herod calls for the executioner to come, gives him orders to bring him John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl. Try to imagine how this 15-year-old girl feels holding this platter with his head on it, realizing yeah, this is my fault. I'm the one that asked for this. And then taking it to her mom, probably the greatest day of her mom's life. And then when John's disciples heard about it, they came and they took his body and they laid it in a tomb. And just like that, the greatest man who'd ever lived was gone. No fanfare. No national mourning. He was the last prophet of the Old Covenant. I get goosebumps just thinking about that. This man that God had raised up to speak truth is murdered and nobody cares other than a handful of his followers. It's a shame. These men would rather, they would rather seek the approval of Herod than speak up on behalf of their own countrymen. That's why they were known as Herodians, these Jews who sided more with Herod than they did the Pharisees or the Sadducees or, or typical Judaism. And I find it ironic that, that we see these people, these people of God who are part of God's chosen family, sitting by, 
doing nothing, watching an innocent man die, when this very week we're celebrating the events that lead up to the very same thing happening to Jesus. 2,000 years ago, God's people again screamed, approved of the murder of an innocent man, of the Son of God. And so what happened to John the Baptist is a beautiful, a morbidly beautiful microcosm of what Jesus himself goes through. We see God's people doing nothing while God's prophets are murdered. Two major differences between the deaths of John and Jesus, though. We'll try to wrap things up here. The first is this, okay? Jesus' death accomplished a lot more. John died to appease the wrath of Herodias. All right, that's not a very noble reason to die. I certainly wouldn't want my death to simply serve as satisfying somebody's anger against me for preaching the truth. Jesus' death accomplished a lot more because Jesus' death appeased the wrath of his father against sin. John died isolated and alone, didn't accomplish a whole lot. Jesus died isolated, alone, except for a handful of his people, and it accomplished the salvation of his people. Huge difference there. So I want to shift gears as we begin to wrap things up. We fast forward a little bit. We'll get back to the other way that their death is different in a little bit. But here's the thing. Herod had the chance to meet Jesus. We saw, we're not going to go there, but we saw the screen ago that that Herod is thinking every time he hears Jesus' name mentioned, he's thinking to himself, it's John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist. I had him murdered. He's out to get me. He's not going to leave me alone. He's a ghost. But he finally gets to meet Jesus. Do you know when he meets Jesus? He meets Jesus this week, during the Passion Week, because Jesus' people, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they'd finally had enough of Jesus' message. And so they begin to drag him through this shenanigan of a legal trial. And Luke tells us in chapter 23, we're going to go there, Luke tells us that when Pilate, who was the governor of Judea at the time, heard this, talking about the testimony that was coming against Christ, He asked whether the man was a Galilean. Does he live in the Galilee area? Because we got somebody close by that's kind of in charge over there. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent Jesus over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Verse 10, the chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with the soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him with splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. So nice to know. Became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at odds with each other. They were enemies. There was some bad blood brewing between them. Luke tells us that Herod was glad when he saw Jesus, for he had long desired to see him. And I've got I to tell myself, okay, Herod is the supposed king of the region, right? How difficult would it be in as small an area as it is for Herod to have gone out of his way to meet Jesus? I think that he could have done it before this, because this is some year after Herod begins to hear about Jesus. And so when it said that he was glad to see John the Baptist, we're speculating a little bit now, but I wonder, or when he was glad to see Jesus. I wonder if he wasn't glad to see him because he realized when he laid eyes on him, whew, 
good. It's not John the Baptist. I don't have anything to worry about now. Sweet, I'm not being pursued by some ghost. Sorry, Jesus. Yeah, I don't think you've done anything wrong, but here, go back to Pilate. Let them do whatever it is that they're doing. Pilate, you're great, dude. Thumbs up. Glad that you solved this issue for me. Herod never got it. He had John the Baptist in prison for over a year, enjoying conversations. He had Jesus in his very presence, yet was asking all of the wrong questions. What a wasted opportunity. So here's where we're going to land this plane. As our band comes forward, and we begin to just see this dynamic between Herod and and John and Jesus and, and the betrayal of the men of God by the people of God, we have to ask ourselves, all right, how are we, if Herod certainly never had any idea or, or any inkling of how to respond to the work and message of Christ, either that was coming from Christ or coming from John or coming by all of Jesus' disciples, the question remains for us 2,000 years later. How are we going to respond? We can't avoid that question. It's one that every single one of us, before we leave here, we're going to answer whether we do it intentionally, verbally, mentally, whether you don't even realize that you've made an answer, we're all going to answer that question. How are we going to respond to what Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago as he bore the sins of his people and satisfied his Father's wrath against sin? If you're a follower of Christ this morning, here's how I would love for you to answer that. I'm going to respond to the work of Christ by resting in the work of Christ. I'm going to respond by realizing that I don't have to keep the law perfectly for God to perfectly love me. I'm going to respond by realizing that that I don't have to leave here trying to do things that are going to please God. God's already pleased with me. It means that I'm going to leave here recognizing that it doesn't matter how much good I do, how much good I don't do. It's not going to alter my standing with God one bit because I am in Christ and I have the righteousness of Christ on me. And so God doesn't see Richard Boyce, the guy that still screws up. God sees Richard Boyce, the guy who is in his son, covered by his son's righteousness. And so it's not about performance anymore. It's not about making God happy. He is happy. You probably hear it every week, Romans 8.1, there is now therefore, because of what Christ did, no condemnation, no reason whatsoever for God to ever look at any one of his children and say, I'm mad at you, I'm disappointed, you let me down, you failed me, that's garbage. And so we need to respond to the work of Christ by realizing our standing before God in Christ. It can't get any better than that. We are viewed as God's children. The same love with with which the Father poured out on His Son is now freely distributed among whosoever believeth on the name of the Son of God. That's good news. It's not good news when I tell you, you can trust Christ as Savior and I'll spend the rest of your life making Him happy. That's not good news because we can't do it. We're still in this body of flesh. Good news is realizing that even when we fail, it's forgiven. It's gone. It's done. And so if you're a believer in Christ this morning, I pray that's your response to the work of Christ. I can't tell you how much that I hope you're here next week 
Because this is the other way in which Jesus' death differed from John's. He didn't stay dead. And as much as we talk about what Christ accomplished in the cross, next week we get to spend the entire time talking about what Jesus accomplished in his resurrection. Because that's part and parcel of the gospel. Jesus rose from the dead. And in that resurrection, he gives us so much that we don't even think about. I'd love to talk further, but I'm going to preach Walt's message, and I don't want to do that. But come back next week. But maybe you're sitting here and you're not a believer. Maybe you're sitting here and this is all kind of new to you. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so for some of you, the best way that you can respond is just to say, okay, I need to think about this. That's perfectly fine. If you need to chew on what you've been told here, if you need to dig out your Bible and see if, if what I have said, and hopefully you've seen it here, is truly God's Word, not my Word, by all means, dig deeper. Ask questions. Call me. Call Walt. Get a hold of anybody in this church. And we would love to sit down, and if we don't know the answers, we'll find somebody that does. But maybe you're sitting here and you don't know Christ, but as I have been talking, something, something's going on in here and something's different. I would encourage you, embrace Christ as Savior. Does that mean joining a church? Nope. Putting money in the basket? Nope. Doing No, it doesn't mean any of that. It just simply means coming to that place of recognition within yourself where you realize, okay, God, you're right and I'm not. You're holy and I'm not. I can't save myself. So I'm trusting Christ to save me. And if you want somebody to sit with you and show you from Scripture what that really means and what that looks like, we're here for you. So our journey marker as we leave here, the thought that I want you to think about for the rest of the week, for the rest of the, the, rest of the month is the rest of the week, for as long as you need to think about it is this. We know who Jesus is. We have His Word. We know who He is. How are we going to respond to Him? What will we do with Him? Will we embrace Him as Savior? Or like Herod, are we going to say, oh, okay, that, I don't need that. You know, Herod died less than a decade later with no power in exile. A life of emptiness ending in emptiness. And that's all that's there for you if you don't come to Christ. How are you going to respond? Father, we thank you, Lord, for the time that you've given us. Lord, as we create this space where we have just a couple of minutes to, to sit and think Lord, I pray that you would continue to preach the gospel, not just to the lost in here, but to your own people. Lord, help us to realize that in Christ there is no more work. There is no more, no more trying to earn favor. We can't. It's there. We have it. Father, for the one that's sitting here and, and they're wrestling with who this man Jesus was, and they're still trying to figure out Okay, do I buy into what I've been told? Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts. Lord, if they have questions in this time of response, let them just seek me out or even just turn to the person next to them. Father, we thank you for Life Journey Church, what you're doing for us, what you're doing through us. Help us, Father, to leave here with a deeper awareness of your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.